You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And we're going to take a break from our normally scheduled programming this week because our producer, Lauren Larson, is out for the week. Three and a half years ago, I sat down to talk with Bill Henson, the founder of Posture Shift Ministries, which at the time was called Lead Them Home, to talk about how to have productive conversations when you don't control the terms of debate. And if we had ended up having the conversation I had intended to have, that would have been a pretty good conversation. But instead, it ended up going in a few places I didn't expect. We spent a decent amount of time talking about what it's like for an individual or for a group to lose power and how our response to losing power is part of our spiritual development and part of our witness to the world around us. We talked about deliberately mourning alongside people who are grieving as an act of witness. And we talked about whether the country we inhabit is a Christian nation or not. These were interesting conversations to have and important conversations to have at the start of 2018. But over the last couple years, they have obviously become a lot more relevant for anyone in the country who considers themselves a Christian. We tend to cut a lot of our interviews down because I am frequently incapable of having a brief conversation. But given all of the interesting places this one went, I thought it was worth running an expanded edition. The original episode aired back in 2018. You can go back to that episode if you're looking for reflection or for prayer. But for now, here is my interview with Bill Henson from February of 2018. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is the gay marriage debate that was happening in our country in the lead-up to the Obergefell v. Hodges ruling by the Supreme Court a couple years back. Most people probably just think of it as the gay marriage ruling. And I actually recently went back and reread Justice Kennedy's majority opinion in that case. And there's one phrase that jumped out at me again and jumps out at me every time I look at it, where he calls marriage the most profound relationship a person can enter into. And that was really the crux of the arguments people were making in the media, political activists were making in communities across the country leading up to that. One side was saying that marriage is the most important and formative relationship a person can have. So it's inhuman or unjust to deny people the ability to enter into it. The other side was saying that marriage is the most important and fundamental relationship to society. So it's important that we preserve its historic character as it has looked through most, if not all, of Western history. And every time I think about that, I'm struck by the fact that both of those arguments miss a central, important point that the gospel makes. This is one of those circumstances where It's really clear to see how whether you're a Christian who does not think the state should recognize gay marriage or you're a Christian who does think it's fine for the state to recognize gay marriage, whatever camp you're in, you have one shared agreed upon way that you can witness on this issue to the people around you. And that's you 
fundamentally don't believe marriage is the most primary and important relationship a person can have. Jesus says in the New Testament, no greater love has a man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Later on in the New Testament, it talks uh, in glowing terms about the character of friendship in the early church and how their friendship, their fellowship, their shared life with people who they had no familial relationship to was a very persuasive part of their witness to the community in Jerusalem and the communities in the other cities the church started reaching out to. But ultimately, Christians had to figure out how to participate in that conversation when they had no hope of actually controlling the terms of debate. And when we thought that the terms of debate probably actually fell short of gospel truth in a fundamental way. The only language people had for talking about this and the only language the people around us were willing to claim to talk about this was not the language we would want to use about relationships and dating and marriage in a lot of our churches. So to talk a little bit more about how to navigate difficult conversations that it's important for us to engage in, even if we can't necessarily define the terms of conversation, is Bill Henson. Bill is the founder and the president of Lead Them Home, which is a ministry that's been around for about a dozen years that provides training and resources to help pastors and clergy and other ministry leaders cultivate a Christian faith identity in people who identify as LGBT. Bill, I'm glad to have you here today. Yeah, thank you. It's an honor to be here. And I'm really excited to have the chance to sit down and talk to you. So let me start by asking, what have the last few years been like for you? Because you've worked with something like 45,000 pastors over the last 10 or 12 years, and the bulk of them have been in the past five years. As we're in this period where not just about sexuality, but about a whole host of issues. The U.S. is really going through a major conversation about what our cultural priorities are. As we go through this period of conversation where Christians think it might be important to be involved in the conversation, but we might not necessarily have the critical mass or even the agreement within the church to establish terms of debate that we think are healthier. How have you seen pastors respond to that difficult circumstance? Sure. I, I think that a tremendous amount of change has occurred in culture and in the church in the last uh, 15 years with the bulk of that change occurring in the last really seven or eight years. In the founding of Lead Them Home, there was a realization as early as 2003 that what we might term the culture war or an attempt to make America a Christian nation versus other people that would want to fight for different ideals that may not match up with scriptural principles. There was a realization as early as 2003 that this model is not working. This model is maybe doomed for defeat. This model, even if it was successful, it might not actually achieve gospel principles. In other words, if a religious majority actually does achieve power, will we use that in a generous way or will we mistreat people, if you will. So as early as 2003, there are deep convictions in my ministry that, oh wow, the conversation has to be recaptured through the gospel, not through debate. 
not through a particular ideology, but through the revelation of the presence of Christ in people's lives who we may have different views on. At that time, from about 2003 to 2006, it became increasingly apparent that the culture war was lost. Cultural norms shifting at such a rapid pace. There's no way to really stop that. Now, what was interesting is we were realizing that starting to form a missionary organization that would be able to operate well in that context. But much of the evangelical church really not recognizing that there was a loss to a culture war, but until about the years 2010 through 2013. So there's a huge gap in that time frame where culture is winning and is going to win on certain laws around the country at the state level, at the federal level. The culture is going to win, but it hasn't yet played out. So in that time period, Lead Them Home decided to establish a missionary organization that would be beyond the debate and would focus on equipping the church to be prepared to operate possibly as a minority voice in culture rather than a majority voice. Now, shifting from a majority voice to a minority voice, that's not just something we easily accept. Usually the power has to be stripped out of your hands before we'll let go of it. And indeed, it feels like power has been stripped out of uh, the hands of evangelical leaders in this area. There's a backlash against evangelicals. There's a, a sense in which we have not treated people so well. There's a sense in which the way we express what we call God's love is done in a way that makes people feel rejected or excluded or hateful, that, that kind of thing. The first step in this process is realizing, what if we didn't just lose by the world standards? What if we didn't just lose power out of happenstance? What if God had bigger plans for us than to win a debate or to win in regards to a regulation or a law? What if there was something much deeper he wanted to accomplish, but he could not accomplish it if we held earthly power? What if he could only accomplish it if we actually lost all earthly power? So Lead Them Home was founded on a principle of laying down our lives for people that we may have a difference with. We were founded on the principle of laying down our lives for people no matter what. Dying a thousand deaths to contextualize the presence of Christ to people where they are as they are beyond or transcending the, these issues of debate and who's the majority voice, who's the minority voice. That's a painful process. To die a thousand deaths, to lose power, to have nothing left is actually a very painful process. The great thing is God can resurrect something from that. Whereas many evangelicals might bemoan the idea that we have lost cultural power. From a gospel, a kingdom perspective, it could be a tremendous work of God that is about to unfold. I think God's people losing their power is the beginning of God being able to do something amazing. If you look in the Old Testament, there's this trajectory of God's people being close to him and then being close to him and comfortable and then being comfortable and moving away from him and then remaining to be comfortable and away from him. But then suddenly devastation starts to occur in their lives, but they still don't return to him. They keep persisting. They keep pushing forward until finally they get to a place where they are such a minority voice, so persecuted, so oppressed, so attacked, if you will, that they actually get desperate enough, maybe not even to repent of their own sins. They get desperate enough initially to cry out to God. 
And every time that they cry out to God, God's voice returns, for my name's sake, I heard them. For my name's sake, I heard them. Not because they were good, I heard them. For my name's sake, I heard my people cry out and I will answer their prayer. So as we've navigated this, Lead Them Home has cultivated (laughs) a desperation of crying out to God for solutions rather than looking for earthly solutions, if you will. Now, in the earthly realm, we have to live in the here and now and do things that will cultivate a gospel witness in our world, but we need to desperately cling to him and depend upon him to do things that we don't have the power to do. One of the things I've been thinking about is if the church loses cultural authority and loses cultural power, it might actually make our church communities less attractive to the power hungry. Oh, I just think that's a great point. I think it's like the refining fire. Maybe God takes away false forms of power we rely upon to cleanse, maybe not culture, to cleanse us, his people. If God ultimately wants his power to be perfected in our weakness, we can expect to be put in situations where we will be the weak or the minority, or the persecuted, or the oppressed. And in the history of God's people, our brothers and sisters in Christ have fallen into those categories over and over again. We're the exception, not the rule. And so I don't want persecution. I don't want oppression. I kind of like having power, to be quite honest. But there's something very beautiful that I've experienced in losing my power. The kind of power that I lost was not more at the corporate systemic level of society, although I felt kind of the pain of those things too. It was more in the idea of in the work with individuals, watching how little impact I had to be able to change what people believe. Now, I gave up trying to change what people believe a long time ago, but in the early days of the ministry, I thought that's what it was about. And I quickly was learning that the more that I attempted to try to change what people believe, the more that absolutely nothing was accomplished. There was no fruit of the work. When I had to let go of that idea, there were days when I was in a fetal position under my desk, just wondering, what else do I have to offer? If God's word doesn't have power to impact people's lives and how they live, if I can't share God's word and it makes a difference, and I don't believe that it doesn't make a difference, but you understand, if, I'm, if I can't seem to accomplish change in people's lives, what else do I have left? And guess what? At that time, early in my work, I had nothing left. And it was in the nothing left that I became desperate. What on earth am I here for then? Why on earth did I leave this nice corporate job that was so comfortable? What is this mission about? And it's in that nothing place, that desperate place, that crying out to God place, that literally he raised up a calling that was entrusted to lead them home that has become beautiful. In other words, losing power is painful, but on the other side of losing power, if God lifts us up and perfects his strength in our weakness, there's something amazingly beautiful that rises out of those ashes. One of the things we're called to do as Christians is follow in the pattern of Jesus, run the race set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We, and I say we, I frequently tend to 
forget that following in the footsteps of Jesus means being rejected, marginalized, and still pouring myself out for the people who rejected and marginalized me to make more room for the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. That was the pattern for his life, but it's also been the pattern for, in a lot of cases, his church after him. The church gained ground and grew in Rome as they were rejected and marginalized, but still kept serving Rome's poor, Rome's destitute, Rome's sick. A lot of the most vibrant churches I know similarly started with a small remnant of people seeing a community that was not served at all and praying. It's always a group of 15 to 20 people who prayed for 20 or 30 years for a church in this town or in this neighborhood to start. And looking back to the Old Testament, there's constantly that pattern God works out in his people in Israel of, like you were saying, the desolation, but a faithful remnant that then rebuilds the, I don't want to use the phrase spiritual dynasty, but rebuilds the community of faith. God works through them to make his name known and his character understood again. And then when it's time to enter into a spread his word and make himself known in a new empire or in a new region or in a new country. It's He sends one person out with his family or the whole community gets devastated and brought in as refugees and rebuilds again. Yet I don't know if I've ever really in any kind of formal way been asked to wrestle with what that pattern of a faithful remnant means for life in a country that has been largely Christianized. Again, I would say not- that I want to be careful that no one feels criticized because it hurts to lose power. But, oh, do we have to manage our heart attitude as we're in that unexpected place? Imagine what it looks like to a secularized world that views us as the oppressors. In the context of my ministry, the people group we seek to reach is our LGBT people. So clearly for years, LGBT people would assign a lot of the reason for why they've been persecuted to religion and Christianity in particular, evangelicals even more specifically. So imagine in a world that now sees this power dynamic shift in a very rapid amount of time. Although we can't underestimate the decades that LGBT activists worked for their human rights. So for their, from their perspective, it might not seem like the culture shift happen so rapidly. But from an evangelical or conservative perspective, it seemed to happen very rapidly. To have that happen so quickly leaves us very prone to acting out or expressing attitudes or saying words that are not so helpful. So for example, at this time, if God is the one who possibly even stripped earthly power from us, then we need to be submitting to the idea that he may be wanting to do something deeper in the church. But it's not easy to lose power. So it's easy to complain. It's easy to whine. And some of the language that we use as evangelicals as this cultural shift has changed so rapidly does not come across good. In other words, if we want to have an active witness of Christ, if that's our primary purpose, We need to be the last people that are whining at the loss of our cultural power. And unfortunately, I'm saying in all of us, the process of losing power can trigger us 
to act with emotion and with attitude and with words that are not so helpful. So I think that it starts with humility, a humility of acceptance of the reality of what's happened rather than living in the fantasy of thinking we can go back or we can reverse course or we can overcome. I think we need to live in the humility of accepting the current circumstances and asking the, the forward question, where do we go from here? How do we carry forward the gospel from here? How do we reach this culture from this point forward? In other words, we always need to be recentered, surrendered to Christ at the cross. Oh, he has an invitation for us too. Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your soul. So when we are burdened and we are grieving the loss of all these shifts in our culture, we have an invitation to come to Christ in that. And if we come to Christ in that, he will empower us to have the right attitude, the right ideas, and the right words to say to accomplish his kingdom. Because it may not look like it, but his kingdom is forcefully advancing into this world. And that mission that he pronounced thousands of years ago is still occurring today. And we have to place our hope, our entire faith in that idea. God does not need our cultural power to accomplish the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Every Christian is called informally to be a missionary, to be a witness for Christ in the time and the place God has put them. If you're looking around at the time and place around you and you're complaining about it and look, it could be honest lamentation. There's a difference between honest lamentation sure. and kind of the what you half and just characterized as whining. But if you're complaining about the direction it's going in or wishing that it was more like it was earlier in your life or for a previous generation, that seems to me almost like wasted energy. It seems to me like complaining about the mission field God has yeah. given you. Yes, uh, It's time, it's energy that you might be able to better spend prayerfully accepting the time and the place God has put you in and figuring out why you're there then. It's not for nothing that he's put you where you are. I know that you, with Lead Them Home, you view yourselves and operate primarily as almost a missions training agency. Do you have any success stories or any stories you'd want to share about what it's been like for you to see ministry leaders make that shift to go sure. from being uncomfortable with where they are to accepting their new mission field and witnessing joyfully in it. Sure. One area is in uh, the emergence of a new generation that has deep justice concern and commitment. At 51 years of age, I'm not in the justice generation. I'm all too familiar of how my generation speaks about millennials, being suspicious of them, being concerned about mistakes they might make, that kind of thing. But our generation of leadership has made serious mistakes. Yet we also had gifts and talents that God rose up for a generation such as ours. And uh, I see this new generation emerging as having tremendous gifts and talents that are justice-oriented, and that is exactly the way the gospel translates in this world we live in. Now, we may not like that. We may not be accustomed to it. We may not prefer it. It may not be our comfort zone or our experience, but we will all age out as 
church leaders. And if we don't age out in uh, the credibility of our voice, we will eventually die. There will be a new generation. So one of the joys I see is church leaders starting to embrace the justice generation rather than ridiculing them or making jokes about them, to embracing them and starting to say, wow, they actually have exactly what we need to recover our credibility as people who love. And if we actually get ahead of them and express our leadership as credentialed and experienced church leaders, if we get ahead of them and actually call them in their gifts and talents and start to do some of the work that they are concerned about, we can reestablish credibility where it's been lost. So just as an example, when the Pulse nightclub shooting occurred, 59 people uh, died, were killed that night, 53 others injured. When that happened, it was a huge opportunity to say, we will grieve when people die. We will grieve when people are gunned down. We will remember them when they're gunned down. We will pray for them by name as a people group from the pulpits the next morning when they're gunned down. We will go to the Pulse site at the three-month memorial and the six-month memorial and the one-year memorial. We will bring memorial candles. We will bring cards for the victims' families. We will go and grieve with those that are grieving. And that's what this younger generation is looking for as a church that will care that much, that we will rubber meets the road actually take action steps to express care when marginalized people are hurting or who have or have been victimized so one of the successes is just watching the church leaders that heard that we're going to the pulse one year memorial and quickly notified us we want people to go with you from our church and we didn't have a lot of people from around the country but we had about 20 evangelicals from about 10 states join us And we took a thousand memorial candles. We invited actually some LGBT students from a Christian college to go with us. We got there at the site with our thousand candles. We were not trying to make a big to-do, but we, that was our gift. And all of a sudden these LGBT teenagers, young 20 somethings are coming up to us. They're not with our group. We don't know them. And they're saying, can we be part of helping arrange your candles? And we said, not only can you Help us. We, we need your help. We need your creativity. Help us figure out what we can do. And they decided to take these thousand memorial candles and spell out the word love six times across the memorial wall. Except they knew because we wrapped our arms around each other and said a quick prayer before we began that. And we did it in Jesus' name. And because we did it in Jesus' name, they decided to make the O in love into a heart with a cross in the middle. And at the end of the night, those LGBT teenagers, they were beaming with a sense of having been included, with a sense of having been able to express their ideas, with, have, with a sense of feeling like they were part of something very important on a very important night. When leaders experienced that journey of being at the site and watching the impact of rubber meets the road, being on the ground, grieving with those that are grieving and bringing a memorial gift. It unleashed a tremendous amount of passion for them to go back to their own community and ask, how can I go serve the LGBTQ community in a, in a meaningful way? And the most amazing thing is all of that love, all of that love in action didn't cost any theological orthodoxy. 
In fact, we might say it actually fulfilled a healthy vision of biblical truth. In other words, the most healthy version of biblical truth is, Lord, help me so love you with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind that I actually repent of my own sin. And like the amazing grace that you gave to me when I did not deserve it and could never earn it or achieve it, let me take that amazing love to all other people, whether they ever believe the way I believe or live the way I live, whether they ever deserve it or not, because I am a recipient of an amazing grace that I don't deserve. And watching the passion of that lead to an effort that lead them home, I got involved in creating a national registry of LGBT drop-in shelter, drop-in centers and shelters that care for homeless LGBT youth that have been disowned by their families because they're gay or lesbian or transgender. And now we've got this national registry that is allowing the church to have a bridge in their own community of being able to say, oh, it's wintertime. This shelter needs coats because there's homeless LGBT kids on the streets with no coats. We, w- we will give those coats. We will give those gloves. We will give those boots or those new sneakers. We will give those new Forever 21 clothing donations to this shelter. Because why? Because it'll help those homeless kids to have clothes on that make them look like a cool kid rather than a homeless kid. Because if they look like the homeless kid, they're going to be targeted for sexual, by sexual predators. So watching church leaders get involved in things that don't have anything to do with threatening their theology, but rather a radical living out of the posture of Jesus and materially touching this generation. That's something I'm very excited about. You were talking about the justice generation. For a lot of people who are under the age of 30 right now, they may have like, maybe heard a little bit about what the 70s and 80s were like for LGBT people, but they certainly weren't living through that. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of understanding historic context, not just for the LGBT community, but for Christians in general? Because I know the temptation, our culture tempts us to look at the here and now, not think too far into the future, not think too far into the past. Every day is a new day to live the rest of your life. But as Christians, we are grafted into this much longer story that goes back to Abraham and even from before Abraham goes back to the garden and even before the garden goes to the time when God's spirit brooded like a bird over an earth that was formless and without shape. And it's going to extend forward into the kingdom. We know we're part of that bigger story, but I spend the vast majority of my time maybe thinking about the story a week behind and a week ahead of the page I'm living in this day. So talk a little bit more about Christians and the role of history, both for our community and history for the people around us. Sure. To put this in context, we've thought of America as a Christian nation. That makes it distinct from foreign mission lands. But compared to the kingdom of God, America is not a Christian nation. It is a foreign land. So we are foreign missionaries in a foreign land. For missionaries trying to reach people in foreign lands, whether they're unreached, unengaged, or marginalized in some way, missionaries understand that to reach people, you have to get to know them. It's not about only having something to tell people. It's about posturing yourself as a listener and a learner of people's history, culture, and language. And learning from that, 
and making modifications, optimizations, improvements in how I speak to people, how I engage them, how I serve them, because now I know the love language by which they speak, the culture by which they speak, what language means to them or doesn't mean. So in this question about history, it's really important. If we want to be effective missionaries to all the people in our world, but in the context of Lead Them Home's work, LGBT folks, we have to look at history. And we have to look at how have LGBT folks been treated in history. Just as an example, going a little bit further back, in Nazi Germany, there's evidence of no less than five to 15,000 primarily gay men, homosexual men at that time, they probably would have been called, who were placed in concentration camps marked with a pink triangle that subjected them to being beaten up, assaulted, taken advantage of, given the worst work task, getting the fewest resources to keep warm, to be fed. And they died at a death rate one and a half to two times higher than the regular concentration population. That's not insignificant, given that every 13 or 14-year-old kid that I care for today knows that history better than I do. So as a missionary, if I don't care enough to know that history, I can't reach that 14-year-old kid. I can't reach that 70-year-old kid. I certainly can't reach that 21-year-old kid. By the time an LGBT person is 21 years old, they absolutely know this history quite well. All right. That was my extended interview with Bill Henson of Posture Shift Ministries from February of 2018. We'll be back next week with our next regularly scheduled episode of the podcast. In the meantime, visit our website, christiancivics.org, for show notes for this episode that include the reflection and the prayer that originally ran with the shortened version of this interview in 2018. We're looking forward to being back next week with more reflections on how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square.